Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studios today are Claudia Smith-Brinson and Belinda Littlefield. Claudia Brinson is former reporter with the state newspaper. She currently is an independent journalist, historian, and storyteller. And Professor Littlefield is professor of history and former director of the African American Studies Program at the University of South Carolina. We're here to discuss Claudia Smith-Brinson's new book, Stories of Struggle, The Clash Over Civil Rights in South Carolina. And with that introduction, ladies, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Thank you. Claudia, let me start with you. How did this book come about? I think it comes out of um, actually my childhood. My father was an Air Force public information officer, and he was a restless person. So I lived 16 different places by the time I was 23. So I, I think it made me sort of an amateur anthropologist. I had to observe societies and cultures and in-groups and out-groups and figure out how Texas was different from Virginia. I lived in Japan for four years um, when I was six to ten years old. So I would come into a culture and I might notice things um, to help me, but also notice things that other people within the group wouldn't notice. So I came to South Carolina as a student and I had been someone who, because I moved around so much, read a great deal, spent a lot of time in my bedroom with a cat and a book. And so I had visions of the world from my literature and then from all these, all this moving around. And when I came to South Carolina, I noticed pretty quickly that it was a state where the main stories were sort of, it was the great man approach. And I knew from all my reading that, for example, I as a, a girl and then a woman was left out of many of the stories. And I noticed who else was left out, which was pretty much everybody. So I pretty quickly, I was an education reporter in the beginning with the Columbia Record. I pretty quickly decided that I wanted to be the writer who wrote about the people no one else was writing about. I didn't want to go to the state house and write about the so-called great men. I wanted to write about the missing voices. So that's the children, that's minorities, that's poor um, people, uh, it's women. It's pretty much everybody else. So um, the book probably began with noticing things as a child and then coming to a culture where I noticed there was a world out there that wasn't being written about, and I wanted to go out into that world and write the stories that hadn't been written. Okay. Professor Littlefield, you and I have had discussions about this before when you were directing the African American Studies Program. So many stories, particularly about the civil rights movement in, in South Carolina and the stories of the men and women who were involved in that struggle never appeared in the media. And the pioneer trying to record those stories was the late Professor Grace McFadden. And you had a lot to do with that treasure trove of material being saved. Would you like to talk about that for a few minutes? Sure. Grace McFadden is legendary when it comes to oral interviews of those voices that Claudia talks about early on and making sure that they were recorded. And she is one of, she is the first, I would argue, who pulled together those civil rights activists and left us you know, that legacy of, of their voices so that other future historians and others can can use them. One of the things you often think about when you're thinking about the civil rights movement and the media not covering certain things that Claudia brings out in, in her book is, is about obstruction. And that is one of the means of, of obstructing a movement is that you don't talk about it. And so someone like Dr. Grace McFadden, who recorded that that some, therefore somebody can go back and pull that information and says, no, this is what happened. Uh, this is their story. It's immeasurable. You just, you, you can't, there, there's no price you can put on that type of information. So uh, she, she is absolutely, she was absolutely wonderful for doing that. And in some cases, she not only had the verbal, but she also did video. Yes. She really was a pioneer in doing that. She was. One of my favorites is Majeska Simpkins uh, talking about her standing in line, talking about the equalization suits and her standing in line behind a white teacher uh, in a bank and, and seeing this white teacher who's teaching, you know, 
same education, teaching same number of students and making twice as much as what she's making. And the expressions on her face is a story within itself. Uh, It's not just the words. It's also her expressions. Claudia, you've been collecting these stories for years, and you chose to present it in a series of five chapters. It's not a typical sequential history of the civil rights struggle in, in South Carolina. In many ways, it's sort of a literary organization. I want to know how and why you came up with this particular method. I had interviewed at least 150 activists by the time um, this became a book project rather than a journalism project. And that's just an estimate from the files I have for the books. So um, I started thinking about that material and how to make that coherent for people who knew pretty much nothing about the civil rights movement. Of course, one way to organize it would have been by people, and there are two chapters in the book that focus on people, individuals. Uh, Reverend James Miles Hinton, who was the second president of the NAACP, and Reverend Cecil Augustus Ivory, who was an NAACP president in Rock Hill, and also a rather miraculous collaborator. He could get core and NAACP who were rather um, competitive to talk to each other, and unlike other elders, he would get arrested with the students. So I have two chapters where I decided these are people you really need to know to understand the movements that they were involved in. For Hinton, it would have been the NAACP lawsuits, and for Ivory, it would have been the sit-ins. Um, and then it seemed to me that you had to look at the petitioners of Briggs to understand the deep allegiance white supremacists had to white supremacy. All right, and we need to remind our listeners this is the case of Briggs versus Elliott that, start, that deals with segregation in Clarendon County. Right, so... Um, the Briggs versus Elliott was the first of five lawsuits that became Brown versus the Board of Education. And so it is an extremely important lawsuit. Um, many legal authorities say that Brown versus the Board of Education is the most important U.S. Supreme Court decision ever. It outlawed legal segregation in public schools. Um, the petitions began with just a simple request for a bus. And most historians tell about this from the viewpoint of the court and the great men. So um, Thurgood Marshall, for example, or Warren, uh, the Chief Justice, Earl Warren of the Supreme Court. But I was interested, again, in the people. And so it seemed to me that because Briggs versus Elliott is a pivotal story and because the people who had petitioned for these constitutional rights seemed to be left out of the story, that you had a story about the petitioners. So that's a discrete chapter. And then I had the same thinking about the sit-ins, that the sit-ins began in full force in 1960. There had been sit-ins before in the 40s and the 50s, isolated instances. And to tell the story of the sit-ins, if I were going to focus again on people, I was going to have to go city by city. And so that narrowed down to the cities that had historically black colleges or universities. For example, Columbia has Allen and Benedict, Sumter has Morris, Orangeburg has South Carolina State and Claflin, Denmark has Voorhees. And to affiliate the readers with certain personalities, you had to go city by city, and that way you can become intimate with uh, Simon Bowie in Columbia, who later became a minister, or Thomas Walter Gaither at Claflin, who became a core field secretary and with Gordon Carey actually designed the Freedom Rides, or Chuck McDew at South Carolina State, who became the second chairman of SNCC and was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and was extremely important in the Freedom Summer. So you get to know these people that you haven't heard of before. So that made a chapter. And then um, I, I was concerned about moving through time. And so if you start with Hinton and Briggs, you're starting in the 30s. If you go to the sit-ins, you're in 1960. And I knew that the Charleston Hospital strike was considered the last big event of the civil rights movement. It was in 1969. And it also gave me the ability to look at women and focus on women in a way that the sit-ins didn't allow me to because those sit-ins were male-dominated in terms of the public leadership. 
Val, Mm -hmm. as someone who teaches African-American history and has at the university for a number of years, what is your reaction to, this isn't a typical history book, how is your reaction to this presentation? For this particular book, I love the, the stories. I love the way that Claudia has flushed out the experiences of a Jim Crow system for ordinary people. You know, other books have certainly done some of this, but this is on South Carolina, one of those states. Gets left out a lot, shall I say. And looking at the obstruction tactics used by whites in South Carolina, and then the strategies used by African Americans to circumvent uh, those obstructive measures, is a very it's a great way to tell a story and to help students understand the roles uh, that ordinary people played in getting major uh, movements started, winning major victories when you think of a Brown versus Board of Education or the Charleston Hospital strike. And she's looking at it from different areas of South Carolina, not just Charleston or Columbia. And I I found that to be very, very useful, and and I liked it a lot. In your years of of teaching young men and women at the University of South Carolina, how have you found their knowledge base when it comes to South Carolina and civil rights? I'll use a—I think it's a Jed Clampett pitiful— um, and that's, you know, that's whether they're from out of state or, the in, or they're in state, we have not done a very good job of teaching our students about South Carolina's history. And they know very little. And that has been, I've been teaching now for 20 years. And that, I can say Briggs versus Elliott, and I may get one or two students. I can say Brown versus Board of Education, and where were those five cases, and I get blank stares. Uh, I can say Mary McLeod Bethune, and you'd be surprised. Nobody knows who Mary McLeod Bethune is. So it's it's disheartening, but once you open the gate, they're eager to learn other things. And I, I think that's what keeps me going. The students are willing. No one has taken the time to tell them about South Carolina's history. You've been you're singing my song because <laughs> it's a fascinating history, you know. And you can make any state's history fascinating, but you're in South Carolina, and so therefore you should know about South Carolina's history. That for me is it's it's like a hook. It it just opens up their eyes to different things, and it allows them to start processing things differently, and to not settle for sound bites and to question things. And if you want a democracy, and if you want people thinking critically, I think it's important that they get lots of stories, not just the top-down story or not just the one-sided story. Dr. Uh, Egger and Dr. Littlefield, mm -hmm. I would also like to bring up that while this is a book about South Carolina and we're talking about South Carolina, there's an important national message here about white supremacy, Mm -hmm. about, as you said, ordinary people who can make dramatic changes in our entire world, lasting changes. Mm -hmm. And so South Carolina did such um, a horribly impressive job in claiming itself as a moderate state that I think it, it pretty much locked itself out of the national history effectively. And that when we understand the amazing, intense effort that white politicians made to keep control of the state, we understand a lot of things about the past and the present and maybe the future. Mm -hmm. And so these are... I like to think as a writer about the microcosm and the macrocosm, Mm -hmm. and the microcosm would be the individuals, but the macrocosm here is the story of the United States of America. Yes. I agree. And, you know, one of the things that I'll, I'll just add to that, when I was reading about obstructionist ways of, with the GI Bill in Somerton, when I teach the modern civil rights movement, I talk about, you know, what kind of legacy, if it be economic legacy or whatever, educational legacy, when you have obstructionists during this particular time period, how that impacts the present and how that will impact the future. And so the GI Bill story for Somerton was and I hope you will discuss that a little bit, was a, was a fascinating aspect that will allow students to understand at that micro level, but it's happening other places as well, how that impacts people. 
Claudia and Val, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Claudia Smith-Brinson and Professor Valinda Littlefield about Claudia's new book, Stories of Struggle, The Clash Over Civil Rights in South Carolina. Let's kind of start at the beginning here, Claudia, with the Reverend James Miles Hinton, and let our folks out there know who he was and the role he played in organizing the NAACP in South Carolina before World War II. And I think that's a very important part of the story because most people say, oh, it didn't happen until the 1960s. That's not the South Carolina story. Uh, Reverend James Miles Hinton was born in North Carolina but orphaned young and brought up by an aunt in New York City. He um, studied at a Bible school and went into World War I and one of, was one of a few hundred black men who became officers. He was an infantry lieutenant. So uh, he ended up in Augusta, Georgia, and Augusta had a life insurance company owned by African Americans, Pilgrim. And they hired him, and he spent a few years opening up territory, as they called it, throughout the South, and then came to Columbia, South Carolina. And at the time he arrived in the 30s, Levi Bird was making, um, Levi Bird was from Shiraz, and he was one of a kind. He was indefatigable in trying to figure out how to make a better life for black people. And he was intensely interested and the idea that the NAACP could help him collect people in groups to make a difference. And so he and Hinton might have had different views, but Levi Bird understood that Hinton was a man that got things done. And Hinton was very active in Columbia with a variety of citizens' committees at this point in time that were doing what the NAACP would later do, which is assert the rights of African Americans. So he told Byrd, well, I'll consider being president if you let me, and pretty much what he said was, you know, tear the place up and build it up again. And so Hinton was a short, um, somewhat stocky, what South Carolinians might say, fireplug built. <laughs> and he was someone who never stopped. He didn't sleep much. Um, he commuted from Augusta to Columbia for his life insurance work. And he never hesitated to say what he thought was true. And he brought around him a very important group of people. For example, Harold Boulware, who was the first black graduate of Howard University in South Carolina who could practice law and then became the legal counsel, local legal counsel for the NAACP. He was also working with Majeska Simpkins, and she became the NAACP secretary. And uh, he was also affiliated with Osceola McCain, who was very focused on voting rights. So he was not only a man who was strong in his principles and fearless, he also was really smart in collecting smart people around him. And so um, he became interested in uh, the higher education lawsuits. The NAACP was trying to get people state by state into law schools. And he was interested in equal teacher pay. He was interested in voter registration. And all of these interests became successful NAACP lawsuits that won for African-Americans uh, the right to register to vote and vote in Elmore versus Rice. Um, at that point in time, the Democratic Party considered itself a private party, like a country club, all white. He was key to the fact that um, black teachers who were being paid way, way less cents to the dollar compared to white teachers and yet had four and five times the number of children in their classes. One of the things I should say here is oftentimes there would be a lawsuit that would lose in South Carolina and win in the U.S. Supreme Court, or it would lose in South Carolina and be attacked from a different angle, or it would win in South Carolina and then the politicians would think of some other wrinkle and they would have to go back to court and win again. So Elmore v. Rice is followed by Brown v. Baskins, and the same thing happened with the teacher lawsuit. He was abducted by the KKK when he was pursuing trying to desegregate the College of Charleston. And uh, the city uh, was so determined to keep the College of Charleston uh, segregated that it worked to make it a private school for a while. 
And what happened was he was in Augusta at the boarding house that he would stay during the week. There was a knock on the door. He was told by a white man that someone had hit his car. He walked out in his pajamas and slippers, and several white men grabbed him, threw him into a car, pressed him to the bottom of the car with their feet, and raced off into the woods where they tied him to a tree and beat him. Luckily, a white neighbor had seen the abduction, and the white neighbor, as well as his African-American landlady, called the police. They called his family. They called interested ministers, and so there were lots of people out looking for him. It made it on the radio. The abductors who had their cars on for the headlights and the radio heard that they were being hunted and left. And he uh, walked beaten to a highway and uh, managed to get a bus ride back to Augusta, went to Columbia the next day. He, according to neighbors, he downplayed all this, but according to neighbors, he was very badly bruised and cut. They probably used chains on him. And he went back to work because I interviewed his daughter who said that's what he did. He said, she said the next day he was at work. So that's the kind of man he was. He was a man who had goals. He was a man who was not going to let um, people stop him, and he said he would rather die than live on his knees. Val, do you have anything you would like to add about the Reverend Mr. Hinton? No. I, I Again, I knew some things about Reverend Hinton, but the detailed information about uh, like the beating and those other things I did not know, and I found um, it will be useful in, in the next class I teach. Okay. Chapter 2, we're talking about Clarendon County, Briggs v. Elliott, and eventually Brown versus the Board of Education. And let's, again, talk about the human side of this story. Okay. Levi and Hammett Pearson were brothers. They had no education, and they were determined that their children would have education. They lived in Davis Station, which was a little outpost near Somerton, South Carolina, which is located in Clarendon County. And Levi and Hammett's children had to walk nine miles to school. And what you need to know about South Carolina schools then was all the schools were underfunded, but essentially white schools did have um, bathrooms, water fountains, heat, school books, playgrounds, cafeterias, African-American schools were hunting lodges, donated abandoned houses, uh, extra buildings next to churches. The white power structure didn't fund black schools. Uh, The children were spit upon by kids riding buses while the black children were walking to school. Their textbooks were worn, ripped page discards from the white schools. Um, And so Levi and and Hammett started off with we, we need a bus. I talked to their children who said that um, they'd have to get up at dawn to make it to school by time. These were not wealthy people. They were, um, they were farmers who owned their own land, but they didn't have much money. And so if the kids were walking in the rain, it wasn't like they had a, a rain boots and a raincoat. They got to school wet um, after quite a very long walk, nine miles one way. So uh, they started off buying a school school bus. They couldn't afford a really good one. It broke down. They bought another school bus, uh, which the kids called the sunshine bus because it seemed to break down every time it rained. And then they asked for a bus, and uh, they were refused. South Carolina did not provide buses to black school children. That's where Briggs versus Elliott began with parents, and this stayed true throughout, parents who wanted better for their children. Most often this story is told in terms of Thurgood Marshall, the NAACP legal counsel, who truly was a heroic person, and Reverend James Armstrong Delane, who was a minister in Somerton, who was educated and rather fiery and rather elegant. And uh, he took his pride and his elegance and his fire into many a fight. And um, Val had mentioned earlier that she was interested in the GI Bill. So when World War II veterans came back, white veterans were getting education, black veterans weren't. And so in the early 40s, um, and then later on into the late 40s, uh, Reverend DeLame was taking on, um, I guess you could call them little firefights, like trying to get um, the proper funding for GI Bill education for people in Somerton who are black. 
trying to oppose the consequences of a dam near Somerton that meant that children were having to take even longer walks because they didn't have a boat to go across the new water that was in their way to school. And he and Hinton clicked. And what happened was Hinton made a speech at a summer school for Alan and Benedict that Reverend Delane was attending. And Hinton challenged the people there to do a bus lawsuit. And uh, Reverend Delane went back and uh, he combined with the Pearsons and went to bat on that. So along the way, this lawsuit grew into what um, Reverend Delane called equal everything, which was to ask for not just school buses, but school books and decent buildings. And then the NAACP was very hesitant to use Somerton petitioners because they were so poor and they were so vulnerable and there was such great hostility towards even asking for a bus. Um, And they decided that they were going to back off because they were shifting their legal attitude from not just graduate school education um, and not just equal everything, but shifting towards desegregation. And we're talking about the national organization now. Yes, we're talking, I'm sorry, we're talking about the national NAACP. So Thurgood Marshall was coming down into South Carolina, and at a certain point he's saying, no, we're not going to do this. But parents and their children, grown children went to Columbia and met with Marshall, and the Delanes and the Pearsons and their children argued very fiercely that this was the place to do the lawsuit, that people were committed. And they could get as many petitioners as the national NAACP wanted for a lawsuit that would have national importance. And their uh, fervor convinced Marshall. And so what we have from then on is multiple petitioners. Um, There was more than one petition. People who did not quit. And that, that is what the chapter is about. Val, you, I would like to bring Val into this conversation about the white reaction, the squeeze, and what this this was the attempt to to stifle petitioners' participation, witness, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, when you think about this Jim Crow system, and in order to maintain white supremacy, Briggs versus Elliot is certainly a great case to look at as to how, especially in this case, South Carolina whites squeezed people in in many, many different ways. So not so if you are a school teacher like Delane and his wife, then you lose your job. If you work at a gas station, you know, you lose your job. There are other ways. If you are Levi Pearson, you know, you lose the ability to run your farm. In, In other words, you can't farm because no one will sell you anything that you need in order to operate a farm, uh, to the point that Pearson ends up selling timber, and even that's obstructed. So he has to get other people uh, to sell the timber for him, and and so these are all the kinds of things that that we often don't think about as as this this kind of culture of forcing people, intimidating people. Either you know you kill them, you beat them, uh, you take away their livelihood, and sometimes you do those things simultaneously. And we often don't think about the impact that has on the children hiding under beds. And I think Claudia does a wonderful job of bringing uh, those kinds of stories out about the impact that it does have on the children of of these heroes and sheroes. With the Pearsons, another part of that story is World War II veteran. Yes. Working for change. Yes. um, World War II veterans were a powerful force in the civil rights movement. And that's true in South Carolina. You have gone off to fight for your country. You've gone off to fight for democracy. You have been treated like a hero in the places that you have liberated. And you come home and all those rights that you were fighting for are not going to be yours. And so that was a key to many of the activists in the civil rights movement. Ferdinand and Jesse Pearson were World War II veterans. They were the sons of Levi and Hammett, and it was a shock. It was a, it was a deep wound to have been working to save the free world and then not be part of the free world, to be de- denied your GI Bill, to be denied access to stores, 
to see your children not going to have a better life. And so uh, World War II veterans played an important part in the civil rights movement. All right. Before we move on to other stories, let's bring Briggs v. Elliott to its conclusion, certainly in South Carolina. The NAACP does decide to take the case, and it's in federal court in Charleston. The petitioners had an unusual judge, Jay Wadey's Waring, who had broken from the patrician Charleston culture and was very much interested in the lawsuit. And he and Marshall were key to the decision that this lawsuit would become not an equal everything lawsuit, but a desegregation lawsuit. Other judges in South Carolina didn't agree with this at all, but Jay Wadey's wearing in his dissent said that that segregation is per se inequality. Going back to the petitioners, a janitor lost his job, maids lost their jobs. As Val pointed out, farmers couldn't get um, rented machinery, they couldn't get seed, but each time the lawsuit changed, they stuck with it. And so Briggs went with other lawsuits to the Supreme Court, and we get Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, um, in which Waring's words are pretty much replicated, that segregation is inequality and therefore violates the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. And then in 1955, a rather vague guideline about how schools will be desegregated over time. And part of the reaction in South Carolina is not the Klan, it's the creation of white citizens' councils. And Val, do you want to talk about that for a minute? Another form of, of, of obstruction. I, I told Claudia earlier that in reading this particular book, in the margins, I kept writing obstruction, obstruction, obstruction. So when you think of the white citizens' council, it is a long line of groups uh, who organize in order to maintain white supremacy. You know, we, we've had them since Reconstruction coming forward. And so the whites, for me, the White Citizen Council fits into that long line of groups, uh, mainly to maintain white supremacy. And literally, within a few years, there were tens of thousands of members in South Carolina that the FBI said were the upstanding citizens of the community. They were very careful to say, we're not the Klan, but we are going to oppose desegregation. Which is interesting in, in that, you know, the, the lines are very blurred here uh, when you say upstanding uh, citizens, and, and I agree that is that is what they were called. I would argue, again, this is an obstructionist tactic in that you dress them up a little bit more. But they have the very same ideals. They are in both groups. So it's, it's, it's one of the same in many ways. There, there was a wit who called um, the White Citizens Councils the KKK in, in ties. Yes. And um, when the uh, Association of White Citizens Councils for South Carolina was organized and had large rallies, Senator Thurman would come, Governor Burns would come. Uh, Senator Eastland of Mississippi would come. They would be on the stage promoting white supremacy. Claudia and Val, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Claudia Smith Brinson and Professor Valinda Littlefield about Claudia's new book, Stories of Struggle, The Clash Over Civil Rights in South Carolina. All right, let's move on now to Rock Hill. Friendship College and the sit-ins in South Carolina. Many people probably know that on February 1st, 1960, some Greensboro, North Carolina students sat down at a lunch counter and then came back the next day and the next day and the next day with not tens of supporters, but hundreds of supporters. So this is when the sit-in movement that uh, caught fire. And in Rock Hill, South Carolina, was a minister named Reverend Cecil Augustus Ivory who was following this. And he was um, someone who could pretty much charm anybody. He was a high-energy person. Um, he was wheelchair-bound from a childhood injury. That didn't make him pause for one second. He 
worked with the, ch- the students of Friendship Junior College. Um, their goal was to be the first sit-in in South Carolina, and they were the first organized sit-in on February 12, 1960. There was great opposition by whites who had heard that there were going to be sit-ins coming towards South Carolina. The national media was was predicting that sit-ins would spread. But then on the day the sit-ins happened in Rock Hill, the national media was pretty much, oh, my gosh, South Carolina, (laughs) the bastion of segregation, has a sit-in. There was really some sort of excitement in the national coverage. So Reverend Cecil Augustus Ivory uh, brought in James T. McCain of CORE and um, Newman, Reverend Ida Quincy Newman of the NAACP, and all the, uh, these two groups um, were su- in support of the students had- holding sit-ins. And so Rock Hill became, as I just mentioned, um, the first location for sit-ins. Uh, the students were harassed in all sorts of ways, but they had trained to be nonviolent. Cigarettes were put out in their backs. Ammonia was thrown in their faces. They were shoved off stools. Um, when I interviewed students, a plumber who worked, uh, a student who worked very closely with Reverend Ivory said that the first day was scary in many ways, not just because of the opposition that they were going to encounter, but scary in terms of whether they could stay nonviolent. And he told me the story of Arthur Ham, who was football player size, and he was so worried about Arthur Ham because he knew Arthur Ham would be singled out and that Arthur Ham was big enough to fight back. And he told me the story of Arthur Ham walking slowly back and forth in the drugstore while white men attacked him and never losing his calm. And this, this to me, exemplified how both brave and philosophically wise these students were. They understood that they couldn't win physically. They didn't have the guns, so to speak. Um, they could win morally and ethically through the use of nonviolence. And so Rock Hill was not only the first, it also set the tone for being trained, being calm, accepting the violence against you and not retaliating. Uh, this became later called soul power, and it, it um, came not through Martin Luther King, really, but through the students studying Gandhi and then thinking of Martin Luther King as a Gandhi inherent. And Gandhi was a, a leader in India that succeeded in breaking India away from the rule of Great Britain through peaceful protest. What to me was fascinating in the chapter on the sit-ins is you've already mentioned CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, and the NAACP, almost rival organizations for control of the civil rights movement. But this is a student-led movement in South Carolina. They actually organized themselves in Columbia in, in March 1960. Students from black colleges come together to basically say, this is what we're going to do. They were ahead of both organizations. In fact, initially, Val, I believe the NAACP was not really enthusiastic about this student sit-in movement. That's correct. Uh, that and the Selma March, they weren't, you know, again, students being being out front, uh, very similar to, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott and women being out front and the ministers having to catch up. Students played a tremendous role in putting things in your face but still maintaining that type of dignity and calmness that was needed to make a point because you have TV looking at you at this particular standpoint and, and showing racism for what it really is. Again, the students took on – I'm thinking of the Diane Nash story where Bobby Kennedy calls and says, you know, we can't protect you for the Freedom Rides. And she's saying, you know, we've already made our wills. They're that they're just as dedicated as the adults, and I think that helps us understand the level of commitment not only from uh, the from the from the adults, but from children and young adults. Well, I would like to read a short passage, Claudia, from your book. It's what the newspaper editors in South Carolina decided at the end of the, at the end of the year most newspapers wrapped up this was the big story of 1960 South Carolina newspaper editors wound up the year with a focus on race too responding to a year in poll by the Associated Press the white male editors ranked the presidential campaign and Kennedy's surprise win assisted by black voters that was Kennedy won South Carolina uh, as the 
two top stories of the year, ranked third and fourth were lunch counter sit-ins and the, quote, anti-segregation demonstration by 1,000 Negroes in the streets of the usually placid city of Orangeburg, quote. With an offhand nod to angry punches in Orangeburg, egg-throwing in Rock Hill, and some minor shoving in Columbia and a few of the cities as exceptions, the articles claim no violence occurred. Absent from that assessment were tear gas and fire hoses in Orangeburg and the resulting injuries to demonstrators as well as bomb threats, cross-burnings, and assaults throughout the state. The wrap-up of the story noted, the busy year of demonstrations failed to integrate a single Palmetto State lunch counter. Val, this is what you've been saying all along. Conspiracy of silence. Conspiracy of silence. And it works. Uh, Silence is one of those, you know, when you're reading documents and things, sometimes it's what's not said. Uh, I'm I'm smiling in a wry, um, unhappy way right now, which is that... uh, this is one of the reasons I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. If, if we don't know these stories, um, we can't respond appropriately to the world we're in because we don't know what came before. Before we move to the, to the Charleston Hospital strike, anything more about the Reverend Mr. Ira you'd like to talk about? I was reading uh, Ray Arsenault's book on the Freedom Rides, and he mentions a minister in a wheelchair who says to... Um, the Freedom Riders, and this includes uh, uh, Senator Lewis, get in, get in the car, because they're white thugs um, around um, cursing and promising death. And I thought, who is this guy? (laughs) So I went hunting um, Reverend Ivory, and I'm so glad I found him. Um, He had passed on young. He, He died in his 40s, partly because of his activity in the civil rights movement. He was constantly in a wheelchair and got um, bone sores that um, infected and killed him. His fervor, as I said, also was accompanied by charm. And I think the Rock Hill power structure struggled with that. They genuinely liked Reverend Ivory, although he unnerved them. He constantly had death threats. He had a pistol on his nightstand. He would occasionally sit outside um, on his porch with a rifle across his lap. He had people who would push his wheelchair for him who were large and imposing, (laughs) just in case. But he also pulled his wheelchair up to a lunch counter and had a lawsuit about this because he asked to be served. He was with um, Ham, and he was refused service, and he said, but I'm not taking up a lunch counter seat, and I've made a purchase elsewhere in the store. And so... um, both he and Ham sued for their, about their arrest, and his lawsuit ended with his death, but Ham's went on and became one of the important lawsuits making the point that you can't charge someone with breach of peace or trespass when they are a customer in a store behaving in a peaceful way, and you've refused them service. Okay. All right. Let's move on to the hospital strike, because this is not only a racial issue, it is clearly a gender issue uh, as well. So just as I uh, thought that Briggs versus Elliott and Brown versus the Board of Education were written about in terms of the great men, um, I felt that there was a side of the hospital strike that hadn't been explored. It had been occasionally written about by people who were interested in labor unions, and that's because the women of the hospital strike were seeking equal pay through the assistance of not only this Southern Christian Leadership Conference, but also a labor union, 1199, in uh, New York City, which represented hospital workers. So I thought, why why am I reading about the Charleston Hospital strike in terms of Walter Ruther only, maybe, um, and not 400 women on the streets? So uh, the, what was then the Medical College Hospital in 19... Um, 19- 65, 66, 67, 68, after the 1964 Civil Rights Act has made it illegal to um, discriminate in public places. 
Uh, the medical college hospital does not have a cafeteria for its black workers. It does not pay them minimum wage. It does not provide them a lounge like it does the white workers. White doctors uh, segregated their visiting rooms and also did refuse to uh, treat black patients. So all these things were being done in violation of not only the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but an executive order that also required that public institutions taking federal money not discriminate. So um, in 1967, uh, five licensed practical nurses and nurses aides who were African-American were uh, fired when they refused to do something that they weren't supposed to do anyway, which was to give medications to patients. Uh, they walked out rather than do it because they knew um, they were in, would be endangering the patients as well as their own jobs. It was discussed a great deal. They did eventually get their jobs back, but it pretty much started the movement because women were very, very tired of being addressed with um, defamatory names rather than their own name. Their pay was like $1.30 an hour, which is something like 50-something a week. Think of living on that. And yet they were expected to do not only the very hard work of a nurse's aide, but also being asked to do the work of a nurse illegally. So conversations began, and there were a variety of people who were interested in this because there had been a successful strike in Charleston in the 40s when the tobacco workers struck and succeeded. So they had people from the 30s that they could call upon and get advice from, like Lily Mae Doster. And so Mary Moultrie, who had worked in New York City and had been a licensed practical nurse and making $4 an hour, had come back home to Charleston to help out her family where her income began at 58 cents and included all this stress and abuse. She became really interested in this and she started campaigning for doing something about it. And out of that became the affiliation of the labor unions um, in 1199 in particular and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Martin Luther King had been assassinated the year before. Ralph Abernathy was hoping to appropriately step into King's shoes and saw this as an opportunity to continue the Poor People's Campaign. And so their support joined with that of more than 400 women striking and became, uh, as I mentioned, one of the largest civil rights efforts in the nation and pretty much the last big one. Val, I, I have seen some historians comment about the Southern Christian Leadership Conference that the Charleston strike really saved the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. It gave it a big push, and it became a national issue. It wasn't just a South Carolina issue anymore. Mm -hmm. Lots of media attention. Mm -hmm. That's true. You know, sometimes you're in the right place at the right time, and you take on the right case. And it has national and international ramifications, and that is certainly one of one of these situations. That is what, in essence, what happened. This particular chapter for me was interesting in that it, it lets you look at a Jim Crow system that professes, you know, adhering to law and order, but when law threatens white supremacy, it's okay to ignore it. And and you know, when you think about add the union aspect into it, the South has never been a bastion of you know union organizing. Mary Moultrie um, is another example of someone who was helped by the elders, Lily Mae Doster and um, Esau Jenkins, who, mm -hmm. who was associated with the citizenship schools. They were tutors to her. She had a beautiful voice. And I think one of the reasons that um, there was national attention is not just that it's 400 women in their white um, licensed practical nurses uniforms holding their children's hands as they picket but also that Mary was sent out in, into the nation to talk about this. And she would move people to tears talking about um, the inability to support your children, the um, abuse that you got at work, and the stress that that and, um, entailed. And she had been trained in her speech-making by Esau Jenkins. She would go with him and practice making speeches. And when I first met her, one of the things she did that just wowed me was she recited one of her high school speeches. You know, she still had it memorized. Mm. Um, so she, she was a wonderful leader of the women. Now, one of the things I should add here is the women felt that um, they were 
um, deferring by choice to the national men. So Ralph Abernathy, Andrew Young. Abernathy came in and out of the state. Andrew Young stayed throughout the strike. Um, the 1199 representatives, um, they became, they tried to found the union 1199B in Charleston. Uh, these men who have been doing this kind of um, war for years um, were the strategists, but the men also deferred to the women, and the, the women were determined that this would be peaceful. And when things did break out, there were fires, there were rocks thrown into stores. The women would go to the storekeepers and apologize and promise that they were trying to have a nonviolent movement. So the fact that people knew each other in the Charleston Peninsula and um, that the women were committed to nonviolence made this um, very important. And I believe is the reason that it didn't become a city that burned down as we had um, experienced um, in the earlier 60s throughout the nation during civil rights unrest. We're having fascinating conversations and hearing wonderful stories, but Alfred's given me the wind-up sign. <laughs> well, Claudia smith Brinson and Professor Valinda Littlefield, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. But more importantly, I hope perhaps that you learned something. When I sat down and read Claudia Smith Brinson's Stories of Struggle, and it is a wonderful collection of stories, stories of people behind the scenes, beyond the headlines, the men and women of South Carolina, what they went through and were willing to endure so that they could have the full rights of citizenship and opportunities that every South Carolinian should have. It's not always a pleasant story, but there are very personal stories, and they are all very much a part of our state's history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.